John's Gospel, chapter 6, and we're hopefully going to look through the first 21 verses this morning, but we may only get to through verse 14. We'll see how it goes. We're going to be taking communion together this morning. But let me, um, why don't we stand together and let's read, let me read to you and follow along with me, if you would, the first 14 verses of John's Gospel, chapter 6. Notice it says, After these things, that Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and then a great multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered and said, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. And therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. And then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Father, we just thank you for this passage, and Lord, the, the incredible significance that it is. Lord, that you are the one who has power over all things, Lord. The creation, you have power over uh, all of nature, as we will see, Lord willing, today. And Lord, that you have the ability to sustain human life. Lord, just more than just our physical frame, but Lord, on into eternity. Lord, you're the one. You are the sustainer. And Lord, we exalt your name this morning. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be seated. <clears throat> you remember that the theme of John's gospel is recorded for us in John chapter 20, verse 31, which says this, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life through his name. And that's really the crux of the whole Gospel of John. And, and this morning we're going to be looking at the fourth sign or the fourth miracle of the seven miracles that are shown us in the Gospel of John. We are on number four and perhaps we'll get to number five when Jesus walks on the water. And all of these signs were very specific to allow us to understand that Jesus is God, because only God... Is there anybody here, by the way, that has walked on water? Raise your hand. <laughs> no one, right? None of us have walked on water. But Jesus has. And actually, there's one other person in history that has walked on water. You know who he is? Peter. He's the only one out of all of humanity that has walked on water with Jesus. And I love that. The one who was boisterous, the one who was 
impetuous, the one who was very proud and self-confident, God said, come Peter, and hopefully we'll get to that this morning, but Peter did too. I want you to notice something, that when we look at chapter 5, which we looked at uh, last Sunday, between chapter 5 and chapter 6, there's about six months worth of time of things that have been recorded in the scripture, in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, otherwise known as the synoptics, because they cover similar things, hence the name synoptic. But John's gospel, we know, is very different. And so when we look at the the time frame between chapter 5 and chapter 6, it's roughly about six months. And in fact, there are about 44 different recorded events in the life of Jesus that are in between chapters 5 and chapter 6 that are recorded for us, like I said, in the other Gospels. And this miracle, first, this fourth miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. That lends it to significance, doesn't it? That, That kind of earmarks it for something significant. And it is significant. And we will look at that. But before we get into this first verse of chapter 6, it will help us to understand what was happening right before this event occurred. And again, we don't see that here in this gospel because, like I said, there's about six months and 44 different events that have occurred. And why do I know that? Because for those of you who are interested, there's a harmony of the gospels. Men have taken in hand to try and piece together the jigsaw puzzle of all four Gospels, and they can all be fit in together, and it takes time and prayer, but men have done that, and there is a list of things, of events in chronological order, the best that we know anyway, of events of Jesus' life from the very beginning of his birth and to the end when he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. And so there are some things in between these chapters 5 and 6 that have happened and occurred. But one of the most significant was right before this event that we're looking at this morning. We know that John the Baptist was beheaded. Remember, this forerunner before Christ. To make smooth and to, and to um, make the way straight for Jesus. This ambassador, this herald, if you will. Christ is coming and, and John's gospel, or John the Baptist, excuse me, was all about preparing the people's hearts for when his cousin, Jesus, would come on the scene. And then what, did, what was John's message? Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed faithfully to Jesus, this man who only had a six-month ministry. Around six months is all he had, and it was probably the most profound ministry And yet we sometimes think of ministries that if they last really long, wow, they must be significant. No, sometimes the most ungodly ministries are the ones that last longest. So we can never judge the the success or the effectiveness of a ministry on the years that it's been going into. John's ministry lasted six months and was profound in so many ways. And so John the Baptist is beheaded, and Jesus hears about it. The other Gospels tell us that, that Jesus heard this. And it was no surprise. It didn't take him by surprise. Jesus knew from the very beginning what was going to happen. Nothing surprised him. But in his humanity, while on the earth, these things did affect him. We know that when, he, when Lazarus died, what did, it, what did it say? The shortest verse in the Bible, he wept. Jesus wept. He knew it was coming. 
but it did not deter him from being human. He was 100% human, but he was also 100% God. Therein lies the mystery, the miracle of the incarnation, that through the virgin, the virgin, Mary, not a virgin, but the virgin, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, the virgin, a very specific virgin, Mary. What are the odds of a virgin giving birth? Not happening. It doesn't happen. It happened once in history, and she was the one. She was the one. And so John, this one whom Jesus loved, he finally is beheaded by Herod. Remember, at his birthday party, he was beheaded as a gift to his wife. John's head was brought in on a platter by her daughter, Salome, I believe her name is. Brought in John the Baptist's head on a plate and offered it to her mother that she could give to Herod as a gift on his birthday. But Jesus heard about this. And Jesus, knowing that his death was imminent, about a year from this time, Jesus would actually go to the cross. And he too would give his life. And the most brutal of deaths. Would to God that, you know, being beheaded, it sounds very gruesome, but you understand it's over in an instant. A sharp blow and it's over. Your body ceases. But not so with the crucifixion. The most horrid display. And so... Prior to this feeding of the 5,000, Jesus just hears about John's death there in Machiris on the east side of the Jordan River where he was held in prison and finally beheaded. And not only that, but they were also very busy. Jesus' ministry had begun to really take off and he and his disciples were very busy. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, it says this, Jesus said to them, he says, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. And so this is where Jesus is at. This is the news that he just heard. Sorrowful news, and yet Jesus knew that John was in glory, but still it affected him. And he and the disciples have been busy, 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 busy. Have you felt that way where you just wanted to go a place somewhere and rest? You, you want to turn your phone off and drive somewhere. Nobody knows where you're going. They can't track you. Isn't that nice? To just get in your car and go somewhere and nobody knows where you're at. I wouldn't recommend that um, unless you are in good health. <laughs> but, you know, just to take off and say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm going to go sit on a hill somewhere out in 315 land. There's plenty of hills out there. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to go into some farmer's yard and sit up on a hill. (laughs) That's what Jesus did with his disciples. So let's read. Notice in verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Sea of Tiberias. This phrase, after these things, is a very uh, familiar phrase to John. 
Um, it's, a, it's a Greek phrase called metatauta, and that may not mean a lot to you, but if you remember when we went through the book of Revelation, this, time, this phrase is really a time marker as we go through the Gospel of John. It actually helped us as we went through the book of Revelation. It helps us to determine the time and the motion in the life of Jesus on the earth and, and certain events that are happening. And John uses this quite extensively throughout his writings, certainly the Gospel, Certainly the book of Revelation. And we saw that it was one of the key phrases in the book of Revelation. If you remember in verse 19 of chapter 1, what was the outline that the Holy Spirit gave to us? It says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. After this, metatauta, or after these things. They mean the same thing. And John used them. And remember, that was the, the one of the markers, if you will, in our um, Dividing the book of Revelation up, because in Revelation chapter 4 it says, after these things, and that was the very last section of the book of Revelation that lasted until the end of the book. After these things, I saw heaven open up, and he said, come up here, remember? After these things, meta tauta, it's a, a directional phrase, and we saw that. And we'll see it as we go through the book of John. Eleven times it occurs there. In the book of Revelation, it occurred uh, nine other times. But the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, is a wonderful place. We visit this when we go to Israel. You're going to take a boat out on the middle of this thing and go right to the other side, right where that arrow is going across. We take a boat uh, across there. It's a wonderful trip. But it's about 8.1 miles wide and about 13 miles long. So quite a big lake. It's fed by the, the different tributaries coming from Mount Hermon. Uh, the Benaiah Spring and the others from the Jordan come right down, feed into it. Very fresh, clean, cold water. And as you know, it leaves the Galilee and goes down through the Jordan Valley into the, um, around the Dead Sea where it's landlocked and doesn't go any further. But the, um, this place is a wonderful place. And as we look at it in this miracle that we're seeing, uh, it's helpful to just understand a few things. You know, as we look at this, we have to realize a couple of things. Jesus, before this miracle had occurred, he was in Nazareth. And Nazareth is to the west of what we see here, to the left of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus would walk down this valley, and you'll see the valley that he would have to walk through, which is very common. It's a very common road even today. And you walk down through that, and you get down to Gennesaret, or um, Noth Gennesar, which is where we spend four or five, uh, about five or six days, actually, and, um, but it's from here that they either launched out from here or in Capernaum, in the uh, north of that, there is a fishing village called Capernaum. And it's probably there that Jesus launched out from there and went across the uh, Sea of Galilee or the lake to Bethsaida. And there's some speculation on how many Bethsaidas there are. Uh, there's certainly one over on the, um, on the eastern side over there, uh, Bethsaida. It's also called Bethsaida Julius, whom uh, Philip the Tetrarch had named after the emperor's daughter, whose name was Julius, so it was Bethsaida. It's a very fertile fishing village, except this one is about two miles in, inland. 
And so, and there's also another, perhaps another Bethsaida, and that's Bethsaida of Galilee, which is a place perhaps near uh, Capernaum, right there along the shore, probably not too far away from Capernaum. There's also another Bethsaida of Galilee, they call it. But it really makes no difference. But the idea is just so you can see the direction of where Jesus and his disciples got in the boat, probably from Capernaum, and went over to Bethsaida. And, and then he's going to come back there, as we will see uh, if we get to the end of verse 21. But John doesn't tell us precisely where this took place, but Luke tells us, that it was a place near Bethsaida in Luke chapter 9, verse 10. And this, this lake, it's called many things. It's called the Sea of Galilee. It's also called Lake Chinnereth or Lake Kinnereth. In the Hebrew, Kinnor means harp. And wouldn't you agree that it looks like a harp? And some think that that may have been where it derived its name. Could be. It's also known as the Sea of Tiberias on a um, um, named after Tiberius Caesar because Herod uh, Antipas built this city of Tiberius, which is uh, just a little bit south of Capernaum, around 20 AD. It's also known as Lake Gennesaret or Gennesar, and Gennesar is right over here, right next to Magdala where Mary Magdalene was born. The place where we stay when we go to Israel literally is right next to Magdala. So all that area right in there is very... If we could go back 2,000 years, we would see Jesus walking those, that ground with his disciples. Very fertile ground, very fertile soil, very beautiful, lush place. Very wonderful place. And this is where it is. And notice, it says that a great multitude followed Jesus because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Notice the motivation. They follow because... He was healing. And there's nothing wrong, I guess, with following somebody who can heal, because if I was in need of healing, I would follow Jesus too. But hopefully my relationship would grow beyond just getting a healing from him. It would grow into something more. And for many people, all it was was just a, he was just a rabbit's foot. He was just a, a miracle healer, worker. Yeah. And so... It says that Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. A Passover. We've seen this before in the Gospel of John. This, we believe, is the second of three Passovers that are recorded here in the Gospel of John. The first one was in John chapter 2, verse 13. We see one happening here, and we're also going to see one uh, in John chapter... It's mentioned in John eleven fifty-five. But also, it, 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 it speaks of John 13 when it's in full-blown, when it happens. Three different Passovers, because his ministry was three years. And so now we've got one year before he is going to go to the cross. That's where we are in the timeline here. And so then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he saw a great multitude. As he is over here on the on the eastern bank over here in Bethsaida, somewhere in this area over in here, on the eastern side. He's there, and he's up on a mountain, and he sees with his disciples a multitude coming toward them. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now Philip was from this town. Philip was born in Bethsaida. So he knew of the resources of the area, and, and he was able to size up, where are we going to get all this bread, Philip? 
And I wonder if Jesus was speaking kind of with his tongue in his cheek. Because Jesus knew what he would do. Notice that he specifically asked Philip, why didn't he ask Peter or John or James or somebody else? The answer may be in that Jesus knew that this was going to be a specific challenge or test that Philip specifically needed to go through at that time. And I want to encourage you, don't be discouraged when the Lord allows a test in your life. To test to see what you will do. See, God already knows what we are going to do. He knows the measure of our faith. I do not know the measure of my faith. And when he allows a test in my life, like he did with Philip here, he knew exactly what he was going to do. But Philip had no idea. Philip didn't even know what was within him. Do you know what is within you? Do you know your own heart? I'll be honest with you, I do not know my own heart. I'd like to think that I do, but circumstances come in my life and surprise me in such a way where I act in a way that I never thought I would act. Therefore, I really don't know myself like Jesus knows me. Have you been caught unawares in something? We all have. And then we're in awe at how we responded Has somebody, guys, at your workplace told a dirty joke and you just happen to be in earshot? And instead of just shaking your head or just walking away, you find yourself going, oh, I heard that one. Oh. Caught you by surprise. Or a phone call. Somebody visits. You get news of some unexpected thing that happens. See, God already knows the, the test and what it's for. God already knows the measure of Philip's faith, and he knows the measure that it isn't. He knows where, where our faith is and where it really isn't, and he allows these things so that we know. It's important for me to know at times where I really stand, because, see, I, boast, I can boast of a big game and say, well, I've got faith to do this, and I've got faith to do that, and God has gone, oh, my dear son, give it time, and I'll show you that your faith is in man. It's not in me. Your faith is in yourself and your own gifts and abilities. It's not in me, Rob. He has a way of doing that in my life. And I know he will do it and has and will continue to do it in your life so that we could be aware that we might grow. Because if my faith is not exposed for what it is or what it isn't, I usually don't grow very far. I don't grow very much. But when my faith is exposed, then I go to the, back to the drawing board. I go back to the source of the fountain of living waters. I go back to Jesus and I say, Lord, forgive me. I thought I was really all that. And Jesus says, I know. You thought you were all that, but guess what? You're really not all that. Rob, I want you to know that I am all that. I'm the only one who is all that. And he can say that without boasting. Right? Because it's a fact. It's a fact. He is all of that and much, much more. I, however, am the dust on the bottom of a shoe that's not even worthy to be stepped on. But God. 
And he allows these things to happen in my life, just like he's, he's allowing these things. So the Lord designs these things. Sometimes he even orchestrates them so that we can grow into Christ's likeness. But notice in verse 6, But this he said to Philip to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. This word test is a Greek word called pyrazo or pyrazo. And it literally means to, to scrutinize, to test, to, to prove, if you will, for the purpose of ascertaining quantity or quality of what someone thinks or how a person will behave themselves. That is a test. How am I going to behave? What am I going to do when certain things happen? Just recently I was tested. <laughs> we were out kayaking down by uh, Rondecoit Bay and I was we took uh, the kayaks out of the water and I was putting them on the top of my jeep and and I've been doing this for a while and so I was very comfortable with the process and I didn't realize and I wasn't paying attention there was a brand new car that just pulled up next to me and so here I am the lake is that way and I'm putting my kayaks on the car here, and I put one on, and then I have to go around. It's a long story. I won't bore you with it. But the problem is, a gust of wind, before I had an opportunity to strap one down, I would lean it a little bit and then go on the other side and strap it down. The wind caught the kayak and threw it onto the car next to me. The brand new car looked really nice. It was such a nice car. <laughs> but the good news is, it hit his, his light, you know, or his rear view mirror on his thing and totally bent it in. It looked like it bent it, but it was just one of those movable things. And so we moved it out and, and everything was fine. There was no marks at all. And so we are, me and the owner of the car are looking. I'm thinking, oh, God, thank you so much. Nothing happened, right? He was satisfied. He's like, hey, you know what? Accidents happen. doesn't look like anything. But then as I, um, and he started to walk away. And I looked at the car, and I looked at it at a different angle, and I saw there was a dent in the side of the car. And it was a test for me. I knew the test. As soon as it happened, I'm like, oh, God, this is a test. And he's like, yep. <laughs> he was satisfied. I could have walked away. He didn't get my license plate number. I was free and clear. I could have got my family, didn't tell anybody, and just got in the car. <laughs> but the Lord says, you can't do that. And I said, you're right, Lord, this is going to kill me. Because who's got 600 bucks to blow on a, on a repair? And that's really what it was. So I looked at the guy. I said, hey, come here for a second. And he goes, what's, what's wrong? And I said, uh, your car actually isn't as fine as it is. Now, am I saying this to boast? No, but I am saying it because I was tested. And the Lord tests us. He tests Philip. And they come. What are you going to do? Are you going to do the right thing? Or are you going to skirt the issue? And so I told him, I said, you know what? I, says, I, and I said, the Lord wouldn't let me get away with this. I said, I could have driven away and you'd never know the wiser, but there's a dent in your car. I can see it. Look at, look at it with this, you know, if you look at it this way, you'll see that it's dented in. And he goes, oh, man. And he goes, man, I just bought this car. And I'm like, oh, man, you just bought this car. And I said, man, I am so sorry. And so I gave him my number. We worked it out, and it's getting worked on. But it was a test. It was a test. I remember another test that I went through, and I'm, I'm using myself as an example, kind of exposing myself but in that regard. But it's, um, we were at Wegmans, and there was another Jeep that parked right next to us, and, and the owner wasn't there. They were inside Wegmans. And so I get out of the car, and I just happen to look over at the car because I'm into Jeeps. So I look over at the car, and I see a $20 bill laying on the ground. 
Hmm. I'm thinking, I'm having lunch this week. And nobody knows about it, right? So I put the $20 bill in my pocket, and the Lord goes, Rob, what are you going to do about that? And I'm like, Lord, well, I don't know who the owner is. It could have blown from another car. And he goes, but it was right underneath the door from where the person got out, right? I'm like, you're right, Lord. What are you going to do, Rob? What are you going to do? So I'm not kidding. This is so interesting. So I, I'm convicted. I start walking toward Wegmans. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in there and talk to the person. Is there anybody who has a blue Jeep Grand Cherokee? You know? and, uh, and then they come forward. Hey, I saw this under your car. Is it yours? Well, of course it is. <laughs> but even cooler, the, what the Lord did is as I'm walking toward the entrance, I see two people come out. And I look at them, and the Lord said, they're the ones. And I'm like, this is going to sound really crazy. Do you own that, that Jeep, Grand Cherokee? They're like, yeah, why? And I said, um, did you lose any money? And they said, yeah, we were just in there. And I, I didn't have, uh, it was a $20 bill that I lost. And I said, I found it. Here it is. And their jaws just dropped. My jaw dropped because what are the odds of that? You know, Penfield Wegmans, there's like a billion cars. And I just happened to walk and I see them and the Lord says, there they are. And I'm like, okay. But it was a test. It was a test for me. I could have walked away free and clear. And again, I'm not trying to boast in any righteousness because deep inward I'm a pig. Because I would have gladly taken that if I could get away with it. But the Lord, and actually let me share you one other thing too. This is actually my daughter and a friend of hers. We were at the campsite recently in Stony Brook, and they found a brand new iPhone 12. I think it was a 12. Brand spanking new, and they found this phone in the, near the playground area. And so my daughter and her friend who was with her, they started going around to everybody on the loop and saying, hey, did you lose an iPhone? And sure enough, it got back to the person. But I thought, what a, what a test for them. I mean, if it wasn't for find my iPhone, they, they could have just taken it and, got, you know, and gotten... Um, gotten away with it, but they didn't. And I thought that was a test for them too. What teenager wouldn't want a brand new iPhone? But praise the Lord. The Lord convicted them and they're like, we got to get this phone back to its owner. And they did. So now Jesus is speaking to Philip and it is. It's a test, isn't it? It's a test. I love what it says in, in James. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. It produces patience when you're tested. In 1 Peter it says this, You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what it's all about? It's to refine us. It's to prove us. And I don't know what is in my heart until the trial comes, and hopefully I pass the test. And if I don't pass the test, I've got some learning, some growing to do, some prayer to do. But I pray, and I recognize that test as God's growth for me. See these tests as just that. And you're not going to surprise God if you fail. You're not going to surprise God if you pass the test. If you, if you fail the test, guess what? You take the test again. Like in school. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to take the test over again. There's a f- phrase that I love. It says, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. 
A faith has to be tested in order that it might be trusted. God knows the faith. He, doesn't, he didn't need to do this to Philip. He didn't need to do it to Abraham as he offered his only son on Mount Moriah there to plunge a dagger into his son's heart. He was going to do it. He was in the process. He was lifting up his hand and the angel interrupted him, intervened. Yes, he was tested. God knew what he was going to do, but did Abraham at the moment? I don't think Abraham knew what he was going to do until he lifted that, that dagger and says, Lord, if I do this, you've got to raise my son because you've given me so many great promises that through his seed, all the earth will be blessed. So this is your problem. <laughs> I like that. God says, yeah, it is my problem, and I don't have a problem with it. But you're having a problem. And then Abraham passes the test. May we all pass the tests as they come into our lives. Amen? Amen. So Philip answered, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may even have just a little. A denarius is one day's wage. You work for that denarius back at that time for a whole day. It would probably be equivalent to $80 or $100, depending on what your job is. And 200 denarii was about eight months of wages. He says, even if we had that much money, everybody wouldn't even be able to have just a little. Where where are we going to find all of this? The bread was not enough. The bread was not available. And they didn't have any money. Where our resources end, God's resources begins. Never forget that. And I'm learning that as I grow. I haven't learned it. I'm learning it. I'm, I'm learning this. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And can you blame Andrew for saying that? It's a very natural thing. We got this many people and this much bread and a couple of fish. Sorry, not possible. And in the natural, that is true. It is not possible. Sizing it up in the natural is very obvious, but we need to learn and to remember that when Jesus is in the midst, when it is his will, then there is no obstacle too big or too small for him to accomplish. And we typically don't believe that until we are in a situation where we have to cry out to God because he is our only hope. Do you know that in other areas, in other countries in the world, these miraculous things are happening? where people don't have anything and God comes through for them when they cry out to him. He does some miracle. God still raises the dead. He still provides for the hungry. He still heals the diseased and the wounded and the brokenhearted. He's still doing these things. He's doing them here in our country too. And notice what Jesus said in verse 10. Make the people sit down, and now there, were, there was much grass in that place, because it is a plain, if you will, on, this, on the east side of the, of the Galilee there. So the men sat down, in number about 5,000. In Mark's gospel, in the parallel account of this, in Mark 6, verse 40, it tells us that Jesus made them sit in groups of 50 and in groups of 100. This made it, made it easier for them to distribute the food and to know how much they needed. And I love this idea, make the people sit down. When you hear that phrase, what does it remind you of? It reminds me of Psalm 23. 
Make the people sit down. This word in the, in the Greek is anapipto, which means to lean back or to lie down or to recline at a table. It speaks of peace, doesn't it? It speaks of repose. It speaks of resting from your labors after a day. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying lie back and notice that he made them sit down. And, and this shows the command, his command, Jesus' command over the situation. He wasn't panicking. The other disciples are going, what are we going to do? How are we going to organize this? We need a committee. And the Lord says, no, just set them down. Go and have them sit in groups of 50 and 100. We'll take care of the rest. Don't you guys worry. Complete control in command of the situation. It reminds me of Psalm 23. What does it say in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack He makes me to lie down. There's the word again. But in the Hebrew, it means the same thing as it does in Greek. The same thing. It's rabas, which means to to be like a recumbent animal or an animal that's laying down or a sheep when he's got all four legs tucked underneath him. Do you understand what that, the picture that paints in a, in a field of green grass and, a, and, a, and, a, and sheep sitting there with their legs tucked underneath them? They're, they're very comfortable with their, their shepherd. They're, they feel safe. They feel provided for. The, the grass is there, plenty to eat. The water's not too far away. He lies me down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And this is what Jesus was doing. This is what Jesus was doing. In Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. In John chapter 10, you know this. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. When they would have sheep in those days out in the fields, they would build rock barriers. Sort of like a a, a barrier like this. And they would build rocks about that high to keep the sheep inside. And the shepherd would lie right in the door with his staff and his rod. Nothing could come in there without him knowing about it. And that's where he would sleep. The shepherd would literally be the door into the sheepfold. And that's what Jesus was saying. I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. He says, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, and here's the exhortation for us today, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Isn't Jesus the great and wonderful shepherd? Isn't he the good shepherd to you? He's such a good shepherd to me. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Notice what Jesus says. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep, but I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my name. Do you know that a shepherd can say a certain, a little, a little phrase, a little sound? Shepherds over in Israel, I remember one time we were near Bethlehem and the bus pulled up and we stopped and we got out in this field, this beautiful field. And there was a young boy, teenage boy and girl leading a flock of sheep. And we got off the bus. It was an impromptu thing. The bus driver just said, oh, we got to do this. So he pulls over. We all get out of the bus with our cameras. We see this, you know, these two teenagers leading these sheep. And the young man goes, he, 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 some little sound. 
And the sheep all just gather around him. They know the sound. They know his voice. They know he loves them because he's the one who is caring for them. He's the one who's shearing them. He's the one who's taking care of the, the salve in their eyes to keep the bugs out of their nose and out of their eyes and out of their ears. He's the one who's getting the parasites off of them. And they know his voice. And he makes a funny little sound and they all just snap into attention and they follow him into this little stubby legs. It's the cutest thing you've ever seen. You know, and they're looking up at the shepherd, just, you know, bah, you know, waiting, right? But notice what Jesus says. And I am known by my sheep, and, the fa- and they know my name. And the Father knows me, so I even know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have. By the way, you are the other sheep. We, the church, the Gentiles, we are those other sheep. That's what Jesus said. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. I am looking forward to that day. There's going to be one flock, it's called the church, made up of Jew and Gentile. One flock, one shepherd. Hallelujah. (laughs) Unity. Yeah. And in this time that we're living in, as stressful and uncertain as things are, we have to remember that Jesus is the good shepherd. And let me ask you a few questions. Are you abiding in him? Are you resting in him? Are you living in him? Are you submitted to him? Or is it just all lip service? Yes, Lord, I love you, but I'm going to do my own way. I'm going to do my own thing, and I'll ask you to forgive me. And he's like, yes, I will forgive you if you confess it, but you're missing out on so much. Are you submitted to him? Are you resting in him and allowing him to give you peace? Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Is, is this a message for us today? Are you heavy laden? Are you feeling like the, the yoke is too heavy on you right now with everything that's going on? I can say yes. For me, yes. Am I, is my heart heavy laden? Yes. For many reasons. He says, learn of me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. In John 14, Jesus speaking in that upper room the night before he was arrested and crucified, what did he say to his disciples? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it it be afraid. You've heard of me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. And if you love me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to my Father. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Does that sound like a good shepherd? A good shepherd prepares. An earthly shepherd will go out into the field and make sure that there's no poisonous roots and berries and other things so that when the sheep go in there, they can eat good provender and they're not going to get sick and die. Jesus tells us in advance all these things. How blessed are we? We are blessed. Are you resting in him? Are you in the word? Are you reading the Bible? Are you in prayer? Are you in fellowship? Now is the time that we need to be in fellowship with Jesus more seriously. Take your relationship with him seriously. Go to the fountain of living waters where there is plenty of water. There's plenty of sustenance and everything that you could possibly imagine. Why are you wasting your time going to a broken cistern? Go to the fountain of living waters, Jesus Christ. He is your only solution. He's the only solution. Do you believe it? Do I believe it? I pray that you do. I pray that we do. Notice, 
It says that the men sat down in number about 5,000. In Matthew's gospel, it tells us there were 5,000 men besides women and children. So we're looking at at least 10 or maybe 15 or even 20,000 people here. It wasn't just 5,000. It was just 5,000 men. But they had wives and kids, and they're all out there. And notice that he, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted and I love what it says in Matthew. This is the parallel account. What does it say? Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the ground. And notice something a little different than what's here in John's gospel. He took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up into heaven, he looked up to heaven, he blessed. And he broke and he gave the loaves to the disciples. And then to the disciples, to the multitudes. There's a great secret here. Notice Jesus, Jesus didn't complain about how many there were. What? Five loaves? Two fishes? Off with your heads. Did he say that? Was he arguing? Was he complaining? Oh, that's just so many. I, you know, if we had ten, maybe I could do the miracle, but just five, I don't know. That's a lot of stress on me. I just don't think I can do it. I don't, stop it. Leave me alone. No, there could have been none. Do you believe in the beginning when it says, and he created, and God saw that it was good? He created this. He created that. He did this. He did that. He spoke it into existence when there was no matter to begin with. If you believe that, and I believe you should, and I hope you do, then this is not a problem. Not a problem at all. But notice the order here. He gave thanks and he looked to heaven. Then he distributed to his disciples and then they gave to the multitudes. Notice that the Lord could have just made the bread and the fish miraculously appear on the laps of everyone who were there. But he used the disciples to distribute the food. In the distributing, in the service, in the doing of it, the miracle was performed. And he uses people. He could have done it without us. It would have been more efficient, actually. He could have just made it appear. Oh, wow, fish and chips. Right on your lap, Arthur Treacher's. Remember them? He could have done that, but he used you and I. He used his disciples, and he still wants to use you. And notice that you don't hear the young man whose loaves and fish these were complaining, hey, that was mine, give it back. You know what? This man, this young man, would have as much as he needed by giving up what he had. That was an offer. That was an act of sacrifice, wasn't it? That was worship for the kid because this is five loaves and two fishes. That's a lot. He probably was on his way home to take it to his family or use it that night for his own family. Maybe he had been fishing. Maybe he was sent to get the bread. We don't really know, but here he is, and he's going to give it. He's like, it's yours, and you don't hear him complaining and stomping his foot, having a tantrum. But he had everything he needed. I'm sure the Lord made sure that he had plenty to do whatever he needed to do with it. There's an old adage that says, happiness is not necessarily getting what you want, but wanting what you have. I love that. Because I don't necessarily need more things, but to enjoy what I have and to want to hang on to that, what I have already been given, and to be thankful for that, there's a secret in that. Because I'm not constantly grasping for the, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Because you know as well as I do, once you buy the next thing, it's, it looks all good at first. And then it's in the yard sale two years down the road for 50 cents. Right? God multiplied what was on hand to fulfill the need. Do you believe that God can do this today in your life? 
He can. Have you been desperate enough in a strait to call, the, to call on the Lord in a situation like that? Because we know that we are not immune. None of us are immune to tough times and difficult circumstances, but notice they had five loaves and two fish. Worship the Lord with what you have and be content and let him do what he wants. In 1 Kings chapter 17, it speaks of Elijah after he had pronounced a drought upon Israel. And it says in verse 8 of chapter 17, let me just read it to you. It says that the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which is in the northern part of Israel, uh, up near Lebanon, modern day Lebanon. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. And so he arose. He went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a window, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. Now remember, there's a drought in the land. So she's got to take water for her and her son, which we're going to find out, and give it to this complete stranger. And at this point, she realizes there's something different about this stranger. It's not just a stranger passing through. He says, please bring, uh, bring me, and she, she was going to, going to get it, and he called her and he said, oh, by the way, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Are you kidding? You, you not only want water, but you want bread as well? Do you want some oil for your feet too? That could have been her attitude. But there was something about Elijah. She said, as the Lord your God lives, I do, not, I, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in, prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. In other words, that's all we've got. We're done after this. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. Are you selfish? You've got to be kidding me. What a selfish guy. Make me a cake first, and then bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, and here is the confidence. The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. God can take what she has. And didn't she do it as an act of worship? She did, because she was preferring somebody else instead of her own self. Practically speaking, this was a death sentence for her. And boy, the, a Christian with the wrong heart would look at that, and I am sure God put that upon the heart of Elijah to do that. And I don't think it was easy for Elijah. He knew what she was thinking. And to say, bring me one first. Bring me the water and the, and the cake first, the bread, and then you'll have enough for yourself. To be able to say something like that, that takes chutzpah, doesn't it? It takes the word of the Lord. That's what it took. It took that for Elijah. He had to believe that. We don't have time, but go check um, 
2 Kings, actually I will read it, 2 Kings chapter 4 beginning in verse 42. This is in the life of Elijah who was Elijah's successor. It says, a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what shall this be set before a hundred men? And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. Does that sound familiar? Old Testament, now revealed in the New Testament. Because Jesus is a greater prophet than any of them. A greater than Moses is here. A greater than Elijah or Elisha is here. He is the God of all creation. And they ate according to the word of the Lord. See, the Lord will never be indebted to us, but we will be forever indebted to him. He will, we will. The Lord will never be indebted to us, but we will forever be indebted to him. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, he says to the children of Israel. But you say, and what have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, God says. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation, God says. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me this Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out, on, uh, pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And that's really what this widow did. She gave, she gave it to him. She gave it. Remember the woman who, the poor woman who had just a couple of mites and she threw it in and all these other wealthy cats are walking by with their silk shirts and, you know, the big medallions on their neck and throwing in a, you know, $100 bill. <laughs> and Jesus says that, that woman put in more than all of them. Because they've got plenty more of that. That's just not even, that's chump change. They threw it into the coffer, and this woman had only what she had for that day. She gave more than all of them. See, God is not interested in taking everything from you, but is my heart in a, in a place where I'm willing to give? Really, that's a measure of our worship, isn't it? We see this, this whole thing of Jesus providing in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. Remember, the whole congregation of the children of Israel, they complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we may have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness. You're going to kill us and this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and give a, gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. There it is again. To see what the quality is of their faith. Is God doing that just to be mean? No, he's doing it for their benefit. They need to learn this before they get into the promised land. In fact, I think, I believe, and I think it's biblical, it is biblical, uh, that the reason they spent so long of a time in the desert was to get them to the place, to prepare them for the promised land. So that they could handle what God had given to them. Did they learn the lesson completely 100%? No, but it was enough to where God says, okay, I can work with this. <laughs> I can work with this mess. Lord said to Moses, behold, I'll rain uh, bread from heaven. The people shall go out and gather a certain quota that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Then it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So back in verse 12 in our text, it says, So when they were filled, when Jesus has distributed all of this to everyone, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. 
And why did Jesus do this? Did he do it just to brag about what he did? No, it was a, 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 an indicator, a proof of what had happened. When you have five loaves and two fishes, and then afterwards you gather up fragments after everybody has eaten to the full, and there's 12 baskets full, I would say a pretty notable miracle had happened. In fact, it says in another gospel that he told one of his disciples to go out and see what they had. Go out and see what's out there. Because I want to make sure that when this is all over with, God is going to get the glory for this. And he did. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And notice, then those men, these disciples, we know that from verse 11, when they had seen the sign or the miracle that Jesus did, this is truly the prophet which was to come into the world. And we know that there were seven signs or miracles, and we're actually on number four uh, right now, the feeding of the 5,000. And this was the fourth sign. But notice, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And this prophet that he's referring to is the prophet that is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 18. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. That was the, 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 the effulgence. There's a funny word. I love it. Can I say it again? The effulgence. Is, I don't even know if it's right, but it sounds good. Um, the effulgence of God, the, the, the glory of God, the glory of God on that mountain just caused them to shake. I wish, I pray that God would give us a great awe for him again. That we wouldn't see him as the old man upstairs. Yeah, I spent some time with the man upstairs. Really? A little reverence might suit us better to remember who it is that we're speaking who it is that saved us and is saving us. The one who spoke it all. The one who deserves all of our worship, all of our praise, all of our adoration. Do you love him? I don't know, do you? Do you love him? Yes. Let's say yes. Yes. <laughs> we do. We love him. We love him. And Moses not only fed the people, right? God fed them through the hand of Moses, but, God, but Moses also delivered them out of the Egyptian army, right? And it seems that the people here now, as we look at this verse here, it says that, that, that when they had seen that Jesus, when they seen what Jesus did, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. And so they're probably sizing Jesus up to Moses. And they're thinking, well, he's fed us just like Moses. Is he going to deliver us from the, from the yoke of the Romans like Moses did to the Egyptians? And there was already this kind of feeling in the air. In fact, it tells us, which we're not going to get into uh, verse 15 and, and the rest of uh, verse 21, but it says that, that there came a point in verse 15 where it says that they were about to make him king. Because he fed them. He healed them. They're like, this is the guy we want in office. Because he did those things. We'd probably do the same thing. If he feeds my stomach, if he provides for me, I'm going to vote for him. But there was more to that. that Jesus didn't allow them to make him king at that time. Even though he was and is the great king of kings. 
It's interesting that, interesting that this miracle of the bread and the fish and the miracle that we saw in chapter 2 of turning the water into the wine, it, it foreshadows what? The Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to take now. If Sarah could come on up. We're going to take, you know, if you think of this, and next week, I won't be here. We're going to be in the Adirondacks next Sunday. But Pastor Richard will be sharing with us next Sunday morning. But this idea of the turning the water into wine and Jesus, now the bread of life. I don't think it was any coincidence that this happened. And as we take communion... We remember what Jesus did. We remember the Lord's death until he comes. And we do this in remembrance of him. And so as Sarah leads us in a song of worship, feel free to come on up and grab one of these fancy, hermetically sealed jobs and bring it back to your seat and we'll take it together. Amen. Father, we just uh, we take this bread and cup, Lord, knowing what it signifies, Lord, your body broken for us. And Lord, the cup as we, as we take it as well, Father, mindful of what it represents, the very blood of God shed in our place instead of our own, Lord, shed for, for the sins of, of the world for man. And so, Lord, we take this in remembrance of you. Lord, how could we forget? We do it in remembrance, and we do this to remember your death and what it accomplished on the cross until you come again for us. And we take it with thanksgiving, Lord, knowing that as we take this into ourselves, we are just acknowledging the, the Spirit of God who has indwelt us deep in our hearts. In the deepest part of us, Lord, we acknowledge that this morning. And we pray for anyone here, God, that if they are not one of your children, that today would be the day that they would surrender their lives, Lord, being translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. May you have your way with us, Lord, how we thank you for these tokens and what they represent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's partake. You know, folks, there's coming a day when Jesus said he wouldn't drink of the vine again until he drinks it anew in the kingdom with us. Can you imagine that day? When we are with him and he raises that chalice and we're going to recognize for the first time again, perhaps, what he has done and and for us all to partake together. You know, there in the Middle East, and even in here in, in, in the West, there is very few things that we can do that express intimacy than having a meal with somebody. In the, in the Middle East, it's even more intimate. But I love that idea, you know, because when you eat with somebody, you're, 
you're investing in them. And, and that's really what that communion was that night before Jesus was arrested and then finally crucified. It was a, a communion. They were communing together and Jesus was sharing what he was going to do. And the disciples even then didn't quite understand it. But even as these people that we're reading about, you know, we find out in the 26th verse that Jesus told them later on, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. I love that, don't you? And, um, and so there's so much more than just the physical we know it's the spiritual. We've got a short time on this earth, folks, just a short time, but then eternity. And how long is eternity? It never ends. That really brings a sobriety to my life, doesn't it, for yours as well? Because if I can, if I can look at my life and put it within a time frame, but I can't do that with eternity, how important is it that I live this small little section? I live it rightly. I live it with purpose. I live it with a desire to please our king, to please your king and my king, to live lives that are holy and acceptable. And when we blow it, because we will, we confess it and we're washed in the blood of Jesus. Don't be discouraged. There are many things to be discouraged about, isn't there? But to know that he, Jesus, is the good shepherd. He will make us to lie down. And I would even encourage you to get carried away with that thought even as you are going through a most stressful situation when your life seems to be coming unhinged and you're feeling washed up and you're feeling wounded and you're feeling scared and worried. Those are the best times to read Psalm 23 again and read this passage again and say, Lord, you're the one who takes care of me. I can trust you. Help me to thrive on that. Help me to abide in that. Help me to abide in it that I don't get discouraged and carried away. Amen? Let's stand and give him thanks. Hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord, that you are the great shepherd, that you are the bread which came down from heaven. Lord, that you're everything. You're our sustainer. God, you're the one who empowers us. You're the one who knows history because history belongs to you. It's your story. It's his story. It's the story of God. And Lord, we're thankful that we're part of it. And thankful that we can be a part of it, Lord, knowing that our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And no one, nothing in heaven or on earth beneath can pluck us out of your hand. Our assurance of salvation is so great because it's founded and it's secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. Is there any other thing that's greater? We know that there is not. And so, Lord, we give you glory and honor and thanks this morning and pray that, Lord, you'd encourage our hearts this week and get our eyes, as we sang earlier, turn your eyes upon Jesus.